Hello and welcome to today's ResiCast. I'm joined by Craig McWilliam, who is the Chief Executive of Grosvenor Britain and Ireland. And we're going to talk uh, a lot about London. We're going to talk about trust. We're going to talk about sustainability. Um, and I think, Craig, why don't we start with, with Prime London? Because there's obviously been you know, research reports every day saying prices are going up, prices are going down, um, Brexit is going to do this, that and the other. But realistically, London is still going to be here in 100 500 years, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right, Andy. I mean, um, London has been a massive success story over the last 20 years, and it's got a position on the world stage. It's got a big economy, a huge pool of talent, and it's got a vibrancy and a level of connectedness with the rest of the world that whatever the current politics are, that's not going to go away. And you see London as being, prime London as being insulated from that? Um you know, I think that prices go up and prices go down, just as you said. But what's really important is whether or not people want to be here, either to live or to put their businesses here or to work. And actually, Prime London's just got a vibrancy of its economy and its population that's uh, that's not going to go away, And despite our current perturbations. And is there a risk that we in the development community take that for granted that vibrancy that you know the the fact that you've got tourists flooding in the fact that there you know there's always a queue of people that want to live here yeah i mean people talk about there being a bubble don't they in uh, like kind of a london bubble and um i remember that 20 or so years ago london was not quite as successful and cosmopolitan a place it is, as it is today and so we can take it for granted. I always think actually the thing that's made London a success is the population of people who've come here to make it their home. Um, and they've come from within London, but they've also come from the rest of the UK, but they've also come from the rest of the world. And that's brought talent, diversity, and this amazing cosmopolitan population. Um, we shouldn't take it for granted, actually, because that vibrancy is a recent phenomena. And how do we... When, when we're looking specifically at the West End, how do we sort out some of the challenges there? Because there's, there's been a lot of back and forth on Oxford Street over the last couple of years about pedestrianisation, mm. taking out the, the cars, moving the buses, and you know whether we turn it into Covent Garden with loads of people on the street dressed in gold. Uh, what do we need to do? How, how do we square this circle with some of the challenges there? And there are obviously different points of view from different sides. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult because... Um, Oxford Street, firstly, I think has to be seen as a district, not just as a street. I mean, it's really unusual to have a shopping street that just kind of goes from one place to another without really any kind of surrounding ecosystem. Um, So if we think about Oxford Street as a district, firstly, actually about 50% of the employment is in office space. It's in people working in offices above buildings. It's not just all the retail that we kind of commonly associate with Oxford Street. And secondly, it's also the home to, you know, tens of thousands of people. So we've got all these different communities that need Oxford Street and its district to be successful. The retailers, the workers, those employers, the residents and the tourists. Um, And trying to find something that balances the needs of all of those groups is really important. But I'll tell you what, none of them want it to be a failure. It, it, none of the residents are sitting here saying, well, I hope Oxford Street turns into a, you know, a canyon full of empty shops. <laughs> Actually, everybody wants it to be a great place. There's just an argument about how to get there. Now, I mean, I grew up in York, and I, in the 1980s, they pedestrianised the entire city centre. and 
all these concerns about how it, servicing would work, what kind of disability access there would be, how residents would be able to use their own homes, where parking would be. Well, everyone had all the same concerns, but in the end, it all got dealt with and it allowed York to become a much more successful place for everybody. And, and the battleground does seem to be over car use, doesn't it? And well, I mean, we, we see all the statistics show that car use in our cities is declining. And, and we've invested as a, as a nation so much in our transport system in central London that it seems mad not to be thinking about how we really maximise the benefit from that investment. Um, and I think, actually, when you walk out in the street... The, the traffic you see is not the private cars of those residents who are fortunate enough to live in central London. It is delivery vehicles, it is taxis, it is private, you know, hire cars, Uber drivers, whatever, um, and it's buses and all those things. Well, actually, you know, it is within the realms of possibility to kind of coordinate that and to try and manage that better for everybody. And I talk to residents and I talk to businesses all the time Everyone's got the same concerns. You know, they're likely to be less traffic, less air pollution, less noise at night, less waste on the streets. You know, there's no kind of, uh, there's no difficult issues to understand. They're just difficult to achieve on the ground. So what would you like to see, you know, if you had an ideal view of where Oxford Street goes over the next 10 years, what, what does that look like? I think that it will have less traffic. It'll have more greenery. It'll be uh, a place that really does welcome tourists, both from the UK and from abroad. Uh, and that is a place where people want to come and place their businesses, build their livelihoods, as well as accommodating restaurant, um, residents. So, you know, I think the direction of travel that we have set about greater pedestrianisation, having a district focus, making it more permeable, making it more attractive and beautiful is exactly the right one. I've always been a huge champion of that. And, and obviously a big challenge that London has, like every city, is, is the wider sustainability challenge. And you've been quite punchy in setting out your ambitions there as an organisation, haven't you? Do you want to maybe just explain your yeah. own net zero by 2030 promise, what that looks like? Yeah, so um, as a real estate company, we have a massive impact on the environment. The buildings which we build or the ones which we look after are contributing to uh, the heating of our atmosphere by the emission of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. Nearly half of all emissions come Yeah, exactly. So basically traffic and the built environment are the two big drivers of greenhouse gases. So we need to do our bit. And uh, the first step on that is making sure that we aren't causing damage through our activities. So we've said that we want uh, the parts of buildings that we're responsible for to have net zero carbon dioxide emissions by 2030, but also to try and make sure that our buildings are capable of being operated on a net zero basis. And that distinction is all about the fact that actually a landlord only directly controls parts of a building. And the rest of it, of course, is run by the tenant who's using it. So we want to work with our tenants to try and make sure that the buildings can be operated in a really sustainable way. We want to work with our supply chain so that the servicing and the maintenance and the refurbishment all are equally kind of sustainable and helping support our 
ambitions. And, and how do you do that? Because, I mean, people have been talking about green leases for well, more than 10 years now. And, and I suppose that idea that you can force someone into doing something is probably okay in a rising market, but possibly slightly more challenging when yeah. in a flat market like we are yeah. now. So, yeah, no, I agree. Um, I think just because it's difficult doesn't mean you shouldn't try and do it, firstly. Um, I think also more and more people are realising the importance of this. So the businesses who occupy our buildings, they're equally interested in the sustainability of their operations, but they often won't know how their building could be operated sustainably. So we've got a role to play in making sure the building actually can be operated sustainably, but we've also got a role to play in showing them how to do that and helping them. And presumably technology will play quite a I think technology is going to play a big part. Uh, we've also got a fantastic supply chain charter, which um, we've asked those companies who work with us to sign up to, where we will all jointly try and deliver these sustainability goals. So, you know, having tenants, no, the tenants knowing there is a there's a supply chain that can help deliver a sustainable outcome is is critical because if we're going to ask them to commit to that, we need to help them deliver it. But it is going to make a change. I mean, you know, if we think about how retail currently happens, you know, with the way uh, digital media is used in stores, the way heating is provided, the way cooling is provided, well, we're going to have to tackle that and think about how can a more sustainable option be provided. And is that stuff that could be done more collaboratively, do you think, across the industry? I mean, you, you've recently joined the board of the Urban Land Institute in the UK, and ULI, much like the BPF and other organisations has a role to play in, in gluing people together and pushing some of these ideas around because obviously there's only so much that Grosvenor can do on its own. No, collaboration is, is absolutely vital. Um, no single player can have the right impact unless they are working with their neighbours and the people who help manage the buildings and their tenants. Um, we've... Um, one of the things, for instance, we're doing in the West End is we're working with our neighbours, uh, including some of the other estates, the city council, the new West End company, and occupiers to introduce uh, waste and delivery consolidation. So that means getting everybody to use the same company to collect rubbish. That takes a really large amount of traffic off the streets. And that's been quite successful, hasn't it? Because yeah. I remember someone explaining to me once, about 45 different contractors i think we've all been sat in a taxi at some point behind a line of you know refuse <laughs> lorries all collecting one bag after another from the same street um actually everyone finds it really easy to see both the commercial sense and the sustainability outcomes from working with your neighbors to reduce that kind of traffic and now we're, we're saying well let's what's the opportunity in deliveries so um, if we're all getting the same things delivered to our offices, can we actually all work together to make sure we, we've just got one lorry coming into the West End with paper and stationery and furniture or whatever it is? And how's that going? I guess it, it's one of those things that's probably going to take a while to... It does take a while. Um, our tenants are obviously, each of them is trying to run a, a business that's profitable and sustainable. And so they need to see that it makes sense from all angles. And... Um, that means we've got to deliver real value commercially as well as environmentally. But, um, you know, we are making progress. But collaborating with our neighbours is, is critical because the more people who put their shoulder to that wheel, then the better the outcome is. And, and in terms of, you know, that wheel of trust 
that is so often ignored in real estate that that's been something that you know you've you've taken your gloves off and you've got you've got really deep involved with haven't you yeah so and the report that you published recently had some quite startling findings didn't it it did i mean we um we've been thinking about how the planning system works and about how communities don't feel that the planning system is something that helps them, but rather that it's something that's done to them. And so we carried out a really large polling exercise of members of the public to ask them for their views on the development process, on developers and local authorities and on the planning system. And, um, you know, the results were very stark. Basically, almost nobody trusts developers to do the, the right thing. They also don't trust local authorities to be acting on, in their best interests, and they don't think that the planning system is going to act to really defend their interests. And, um, you know, some people might say, well, kind of so what? You know, we can just carry on and, as we are. But actually the planning system is it's, it's the front line in democracy. It's where people, citizens, communities... Uh, interact with our industry and with their local authorities and where change happens. Um, as people who work in the built environment, we depend upon the planning system to act and local authorities depend upon us to deliver growth, new homes, new jobs, new places for people. So if the planning system doesn't work well and if people don't trust it, then the whole system grinds to a halt. And, and also, crucially, if, if politicians don't see any votes in supporting real estate, then they're not going to create policies that support it. Well, I think we've seen that in London. You know, there's been so much growth and so much change in London over the last few decades uh, that it creates a real pressure. And that pressure gets felt by, you know, our communities here in the city. And whether that's, you know, more queues on transport in the morning, whether it's more difficulty getting appointments with doctors, more people trying to get into the same schools... And so they feel that pressure and they see growth as being the, the cause of it. And actually, somebody needs to stand up and make the case for growth. Mm. But it's, it's not just growth, though, is it? Because, again, there have been, if you think about some of the headlines that people see in the papers every day, the likes of Persimmon and Bovis have been hauled over the coals for how they've you know, made loads of profit using help to buy for the lack of quality in the product, respectively. And, and these are things that people see day in, day out, aren't they? I mean, they, they, they might are. not necessarily be building homes in Mayfair, but people look at listed house builders that are developing poor quality product with loads of snagging, and they think, well, that's the property sector. They just can't be bothered. I mean, we are all tarred with the same brush. And so people draw conclusions about whether they think the system works well or not by looking in the press and seeing examples. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, you only have to talk to people for a few minutes to hear those kinds of examples being, you know, put forward as to why they think the system is, you know, not delivering a good deal, not delivering a fair deal between private profit and public benefit. And, and what's your what's your philosophy there? So with, with the schemes that you're bringing forward, obviously you've got big schemes in Belgravia and also outside of London in, in places like Chelmsford. Yeah. What's the philosophy there for creating good growth? So firstly, you have to recognise that the places that you develop aren't yours. They belong to the people who use them. And so you have to open yourself up to the views of the communities who are there and hear their issues, talk to them about what they want to see, and 
you know, let them influence the process. And that's not always easy, actually. I mean, um, you're a developer, you've got a clear idea what needs to be done, you're trying to make the scheme profitable. I mean, that is tough, without a doubt. Um, so to actually let all those extra voices into the process feels really uncomfortable. But if you don't, then communities feel, you know, dispossessed. But it, I guess there are different sorts of investors, aren't there? I mean, you take an extremely long-term approach and a long-term view on what you're developing and investing in, which potentially makes it a bit easier for you to have that approach. I, I always, um, and people often say, oh, it's, it must be better to be a long-term business. So I slightly jokingly reply, well, it just <laughs> means you have to be successful in the short term and the long term. Uh, maybe it'd be easier if you only had to care about whether something was successful tomorrow rather than whether you're still going to be successful in, in 20 years' time. Um, I think whether you're a short-term developer or a long-term developer, you need to be held, held to the same standard. So we see that, you know, people don't trust the motives of developers. They don't feel the planning system gives them a voice. And they don't think that people are held to account to deliver on the promises that are made during the process. And I want to see an improved situation. I think actually as an industry, we all need to want to see a better position because if people don't support the planning process, we're only going to find it harder and harder to deliver those new homes, the new places for employment, the new spaces, restaurants, shops, offices that actually the whole country needs in order to be able to continue to grow and prosper. So what, what needs to change then? Because, I mean, I know from my own personal experience going along to not, not purely from a day-to-day company uh on on a company basis but my own personal time going along to planning consultations and and things is is quite a stark difference of age often in in the room yeah so ultimately if we're talking about engaging younger people that don't have as much time on their hands how do we do that i mean it's not surprising that a lot of people just don't take part in the planning system one of the things that came out from our survey was the only people who have responded recently to you know a planning process are those whose previous experience has been about saying no so what you see is people just objecting and that's not good for us because actually you know we're trying to engage a positive conversation we're trying to let the local authority see how people want change to happen and what it is that people want. But the thing is, we're still using polystyrene boards in church uh, halls in, in, a, in a landscape yeah. where people aren't using those things to communicate. It, it's an it's a out-of-date response to a modern problem. So we're experimenting with um, you know, digital platforms. Uh, we're working with uh, Built ID on one of our schemes, which uh, has uh, a mobile platform that people can go on and comment on the scheme. They can talk about what uses they want to see there. So do they want more housing, more amenity, more office space, whatever it is. Um, they can talk about the things they like in the area and the things they dislike in the area. And that's just to try and capture the views of those people who, who don't have time to, you know, come and, as you say, hang out in a, in a church hall. They've got, they've got kids, they've got jobs, um, they are busy. And, you know, their voices aren't getting heard in the planning system at the moment. And that means the planning system just doesn't work as well as it should. So you, know, you would support then some, you know, some firm digitization of that process? Yeah, I think at the moment we're seeing lots of developers uh, each experimenting to try and find ways to get those new voices into the planning system, let a broader range of opinions be heard. And 
I know that local authorities want that because, of course, if you're an elected member and you're being asked to both uh, decide on planning matters but also represent the views of your local community, you want to see really good quality information about what that community wants. And presumably if you can splice that data and, and show an outcome from making yeah. the, the correct decision yeah. that supports... Absolutely, because otherwise everybody's captured by only those voices who are traditionally coming in to say no. And, I mean, that's a, they're a legitimate opinion, it's just they're not the only opinion. And one of the other suggestions that came out of your report was this, this, this idea of sharing growth, of, of sharing profit. Well, it, at the moment, if, if you're living in uh, anywhere in the UK, but particularly in London, and you see some development going on next door, you know you're going to experience all the inconvenience of the development. You know, it's going to change your local area. It's going to bring different people in who you aren't going to necessarily know. Uh, it's going to cause, you know, noise and congestion and inconvenience whilst it's being built. Um, and what you don't see is, well, where's the benefit? You know, how, how has that development, how has that growth uh, benefited you and your area? Now, of course, you know, we know that we're paying lots of tax, we're paying lots of SIL contributions, we're building affordable housing, we're delivering public realm, we're contributing towards schools, education, sustainability, improved air quality, all these things. And, and we all talk about the burden of those. But actually local communities don't see any of those benefits, or if they see them, they don't understand that they have been delivered because of that growth. Mm. So I think developers and local government needs to draw a much better link between growth and local benefit so that people understand why they should uh, champion growth and why they should be happy to see it going on in their local area. That's a very good point. So in a year's time, you're going to shift roles, aren't you? You're, you're moving up to group level. I am, yes. Um, so you've got a fair amount of time to plan. So you picked out your desk. <laughs> uh, yeah, the desk's, the desk's already there. Um, so that's, that's fine. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's a very different role. Um, you know, my current role, the, the fabulous thing about it, of course, is representing a, a really exciting business with a wonderful team of people who are striving to deliver you know, really great outcomes, not only for the company, but also for London and the communities that we live and work amongst. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very local role, actually. I spend all my time you know, talking to communities here in London and in the other parts of the southeast where we're working, um, trying to make sure that Grosvenor's delivering the right outcomes. The new role's much more internationally focused, and so the challenge is beginning to think about how is Grosvenor delivering good commercial outcomes, but also good social outcomes? How is it helping communities globally, not just in, in London and the UK, but in Asia, in Americas, in uh, continental Europe. Well, what are we doing there? What impact does our business have? Are we delivering sustainable buildings? Are we improving communities, you know, health and well-being and prosperity in all of those places too? And what, what have been some of the, the challenges of the current role? What, what have been the, the biggest challenges and, and the things you've enjoyed the most? The, the thing I've, I've enjoyed the most is... Um, thinking about the responsibility that Grosvenor has for allowing those parts of London we're responsible for to become, you know, more, more modern and future-facing. So 
um, we've really committed ourselves to making sure Mayfair and Belgravia are open to a broader range of people, they're hosts to new forms of of enterprise and retail, that they are better places both for residents and workers and visitors, that the the environment is better, um, more greenery, less traffic, more public spaces. Um, That's been fantastic, uh, really exciting, actually. And we've only just begun. I mean, real estate, you know, takes so long sometimes to have an impact. Um, But Grosvenor has the opportunity to do that at scale. Uh, And I think that is what excites everyone in this building, actually. Well, fantastic. Well, look, really lovely to speak to you. Um, So it's Craig McWilliam, Chief Executive of of Grosvenor, Britain Island. He'll be coming to an airport terminal near you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So this has been a ResiCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting, and you can find out more information about the Resi Conference at propertyweek.com. Thanks for listening.